This is episode 15, The Present. I don't know how you feel about it, but my experience of life is one that I feel like so much happens so fast that it's impossible to keep track of it. And I went through this process for the longest time where I would only be able to enjoy my life six to eight months after the fact of something happening. I would think back and, and realize, wow, that was, that was such an amazing moment. I, I loved that. It's hard for us to accept how incredible life is in the moment. So I've given this a lot of thought and I bring it up with friends and it turns out, of course, that I'm not alone in this and that so many other people have the same exact feeling that time is moving in such a way that they're not really so sure what the value of a week is or even a month. They'll, they'll say things like, I can't believe this week has gone by so fast or I can't believe it's already September. How can you live in the moment when the moment changes every second? I think we deserve at least a different option, a different scale of time that is a little bit more like life. I feel this pull to explore and try to identify some way of using technology that helps us slow down. So what I've been working on this year is developing an annual clock. And what I mean by an annual clock is that it actually takes an entire year for the clock to complete a single cycle. The clock face has been designed to represent the changes in seasons using subtle shifts in color. Starting at the top, uh, we have the winter solstice marked by pure white. As winter gives way to spring, we approach pure green, the spring equinox. As time passes, spring gives way to summer, represented by pure yellow. As the season changes, the clock hand eases into the autumn equinox, represented by red. And as the year closes, we return, of course, to the winter solstice. It would be impossible to actually look at the clock and see it change in the same way that you can't look at summer and see it change, but you know that it will. And as the months pass, I think something really exciting is going to happen when you notice that the hand has moved. And I think that the purely meditative simplicity of that is going to have a powerful effect on the way you understand the present. I'm so excited to have Scott Thrift finally on the podcast. I've been a fan of Scott's work for, I don't know, 10 years since I saw his very first Kickstarter campaign, which you just heard. And Scott is the founder of Missing Pieces, a creative agency that he actually sold and left to go do this project of making an annual clock, and it evolved into many other things. So this is a first for me of reaching out to a guest that I've never met before. I reached out to Scott. I was a fan of his work, and so I was so glad he agreed to become a guest on the show. And I'm very excited to announce to you season three. I think you're going to really enjoy it. So without further ado, here is my interview with Scott Thrift. I'm Stephen Levitt, and this is the Language of Creativity Podcast. Scott Thrift, I'm so excited to have you on the Language of Creativity Podcast. Wow, this is remarkable. I just appreciate this extra time. Getting the technology out of the way and focusing on what's most important is a nice, fat sound. A sound that someone can listen to. If it sounds good enough, people will just listen. You know, And if it sounds bad, it's like it's so difficult to connect. That's right. To, to whatever's happening. When people feel when it's right, and they don't necessarily know why it's not right. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, honestly, that's one of the things I really appreciate about your field 
is the way that you pay attention to the details in terms of the way something feels and the little nuances that most people would never realize were there, but they appreciate it when they're experiencing mm. the thing, uh, the something. <laughs> I yeah. got a something from you. Oh, nice. Cool. Yeah, that was really neat. And my wife was <laughs> like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's such a joy that there's something about it. Something. Yeah. So what inspired you to create the present? I think more time is the thing that uh, so many people, I interviewed so many people around the world and it almost always strangely came down to this thing where I would ask a question, you know, what is it that you really want that you don't have? And almost everybody says, I wish I had more time. And I heard that in my early days of being a filmmaker and interviewing all these artists and stuff around the world. And I kept thinking that's, there's got to be a way to solve that problem. And for me, the present, the present day, the present year and the present moon Those are all ways of giving yourself access to more time. And so you live with a timepiece your whole life that is moving and constantly moving. And every time you have to look at time as we know it, you look up and you have to sort it out. It's not intuitive. You always have to kind of find out what time it is. Oh, it's 4, 13 and 45 seconds. Okay. And by the time (laughs) you look at it, it's already something different. The present year is almost exactly the opposite. It never moves. The hand stays in one place. It moves essentially a degree a day. So day to day, you actually cannot tell that it's moved. But over time, you begin to notice that it has moved. And as you live with a timepiece that takes an entire year to complete a revolution, that first year, you're going to have a new experience that you've never had before and not many people have had before, which is getting used to a new rhythm, a new speed of time. And doing that, I think, opens you up to an extraordinary point of view on not just time, but on everything. When I first got introduced to your work, it was through the present. And the concept completely blew my mind. Like you said in the video, it was definitely something that I was thinking about, too, in terms of how do we get away from the crazy, hectic, everything's always a rush kind of mindset. And I think that struck a chord with me because you're right. I mean, I think the way we measure time sets us up for a mode of being that can help humanity, or it could really take humanity away from its own humanness. Wow, you put it so beautifully. It's so wonderful to put something out into the world and then to hear someone else articulate it and that it resonated with you. I mean, I think it resonated with you because it's a universal thing that we're all going through this sense of something's wrong with time or something's missing here. And I think it's as easy as recognizing that we're trying to force work time onto lifetime. And I think the two should be separated so that you get in touch with there is the time for lifetime is the day and the moon and the year. That's the present. And then there's industrial time, which helps us arrive on time and it does certain things. But to try to wrap our whole lives around work time is sad. Like there's no way that we're going to be able to get to a work-life balance if we measure lifetime with work time. When it's almost like industrial society would like humans to become robots. I mean, it's in essence where we're going. I think automation is going to replace 
human work at some point in the very near future. Elon Musk has said it. Many people are aware that the workplace is going to shift. And I actually see that as kind of a good thing because whatever we ended up in in society in the last hundred years is not kind to human physiology or our own psyche, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful. This is like the crowning achievement of humanity, in my opinion. The fact that we can all agree on something is what's so beautiful about time. And so, yeah, we need it, but it's really just kind of like the first stage. It's like a foundation for us to build on top of and for us to understand our temporal bandwidth, that that is something that we have access to. And we're living in a very thin version of it, a little black and white kind of small line when there's so much more temporal bandwidth to understand and more richness of life to experience. I mean, I feel the same way about COVID. Like all of a sudden people had to stop going to work. They stopped having to get up at 6 a.m. All of a sudden all the rules changed and people are like, I have nothing but time. Mm -hmm. And what was weird about it, what was cool about it was when I was talking to people online, dozens of people shared with me about how they rediscovered painting. Mm. They rediscovered poetry. They picked up their guitar. Like all of a sudden there's, there's space. There's bandwidth to do these things that I guess were important, but somehow not urgent enough to actually get priority. Yeah, because we have this idea in our mind that we could waste time and that time is running out and we're living in that game. And once we were not having to wrap our lives around it so hard, so closely for control, we were sitting there and we realized, oh my God, I'm alive. I would like to play the guitar right now. And there you go. Then you're living. You're being aware of your surroundings. You're being present. And I think it was just forced upon all of us this year in a way. And it's a little hard to understand. It's a little hard to approach for us because we're so far in one direction of looking at time that we're totally negating all the other ones, the spectrum of time itself. And so with such a short time frame that we're paying attention to, we cannot think in any other way, but in short-term thinking. Right. You see, as long as we're looking at it that closely, we're not going to be able to get out of... All of our thoughts will be sort of short-term and our ideas will be short-term and our problems will be short-term. And that'll be the way that we think. It could be that way forever if we want, but now there's an opportunity to flip that in a sense. I agree. Explain temporal bandwidth a little more. Sure. I mean, we're talking over the internet right now, and it's to the point where the bandwidth is thick enough for us to have this conversation as if we're sitting in the same room. It's amazing. (laughs) It's it's incredible. And here we are living at a time when that's possible. So the wider the bandwidth gets, the more information can happen. And so we are forcing ourselves because we don't really, it's nobody's fault, but we just didn't know any better. We're forcing ourselves to look at time very, very closely. (laughs) And... It's not serving us so much anymore. And so when COVID happens and everybody has to stop and start just living their lives and existing, you know, time just sort of felt completely disconnected. It's like it didn't even make any sense anymore in a way for a lot of people. And I think that confusion comes from us trying to kind of force our way into the world, you know, or to try to control time. We've kind of cut it up and trying to hold on to it very closely. closely, closely.
or to try to control time. We've kind of cut it up and trying to hold on to it very closely. Um, but I think we just um, need, I think to, we step just need to step back. I've been thinking a lot about Zen lately and the idea of yin and yang and what are those really? And it's always about this balance between doing and allowing. And uh, I've, I've, I heard this phrase recently called, you can't push the river. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's what we're really talking about when we're talking about getting present, right? Yeah. The present is something that you just notice. It's not something that you have to do. The world is changing without you. I love that. Don't push the river. Yeah. It's, it's a similar thing to, you know, don't swim upstream. I think we swim upstream because we're scared that we realize we're in a river. It's like, oh my God, the river's moving and I'm in the river. What do I do? I'm going to swim upstream. And then you just stay in one place yeah. trying, to, trying to swim upstream. So becoming okay with the fact, getting your bearings that you're in a river and you're moving down that river. I think that that is the artistry of being alive, is being comfortable with the fact that it's all moving and you can have a little bit of influence here and there, but pretty much, you know, just try to enjoy the ride. <laughs> You know, it's funny because you and I have editing in common. Mm. Your background in film editing, videography, my background is in audio. And I've noticed that when I'm doing an edit, especially if I'm editing dialogue or music, that the tendency is to zoom in. The tendency is to get so minute and so detailed. Mm -hmm. If I don't catch myself, I could start editing every syllable Hmm. of every single word And at some point, I lose track of the big picture. Oh, yeah. And so it's a discipline for me to step back, like to use that if I need that tool. You know, you need a laser to cut a fine edge on something. But, you know, not everything requires a laser. So I do, I have to kind of like intentionally take a step back and do things like get out of the chair and take a section and listen to two minutes of it. So I can get the feel of the whole thing and I'm not somehow butchering the actual magic of what actually happened in that piece of work. Yeah, I mean, editing is such a beautiful mind space to be in because there's so many possibilities. You know, you're constantly, as you're editing, it's just like, it could go this way, it could go that way, but you have to make a decision. And so you have to listen to something and you have to listen to this sense of truth and you can find it if you listen closely enough. And you can begin to, you know, make time. You can edit time. You're basically setting something up for somebody to have a longer now. Because if you push play on a video that's three and a half minutes long, it's like that's everything to you for the next three and a half minutes you're taking care of. You might call it checking out, but it's actually checking into something that you're very interested in. So, mm-hmm. or a song, you know, a song is also a way of expanding our sense of temporal bandwidth. That's why we can get lost in a song. It's so beautiful touch upon that idea of temporal bandwidth again. I would love to. I have to first and foremost thank WFMU, the free radio station from Jersey City. They did an interview with somebody who wrote a book about the way things are going to be in 100 years. And he brought up this phrase that's from another book called Gravity's Rainbow. I, I just overheard this. Basically, I'm listening to the radio and this guy's talking about this book, Gravity's Rainbow. And he says, in it, the lead character says that one's personal density is equal in relation to one's temporal bandwidth. Fascinating. 
fascinating. And I have never read Gravity's Rainbow, but I started thinking about temporal bandwidth and I've never heard it more clear about what I am trying to do. Because right now, in my estimation, people's temporal bandwidth is 56K. Right. It's thin. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's it's dial-up. Yeah. It's like a thin copper wire. Yeah. And so when, when we have a thin, fragile temporal bandwidth, we just move from thing to thing. We don't have a sense of staying power. We don't have a sense of collecting richness to us and magnetizing character and forming personal density because our sense of the moment is so thin that we don't have a sense of depth when it comes to time. So temporal bandwidth is about expanding your literal bandwidth to be able to accept time. And living with the present is the key to doing that. Yeah. It's about expanding your now. Because as you widen your perception, your moments get wider. And the experience and the richness of those moments gets deeper, as you're saying. Yeah, well, I mean, you start, your memory kind of latches to seasons. And so you get a different way of remembering time, which is the thing that it's hard for people to understand, that it changes the way that you remember time. It gives you a larger range of memory. I'm realizing that this is a tool for humanity. This is not, I'm not selling anything anymore. It's like, this is an actual educational timepiece that gives you access to a wider temporal bandwidth so that you can appreciate time more richly in your life. So you founded Missing Pieces, a creative agency, back in, I believe it was close to 2000, right? It would be January 2nd, 2003, one, two, three, yeah. An award-winning creative agency that was also featured in Adage and other really prestigious trade magazines. So you've done some great work, so I definitely want to talk about that, but what led you to consider this idea of creating a clock around an annual movement? That was New York City. That was my first year in New York was incredible, like everybody's first year in New York is. And by the time I was having the experience of spring again, I saw that the chapters of my life could fit inside of these seasons. And it was as if I was bringing the beginner's mind philosophy to to the year. So it felt all new to me. New York felt new to me. Time felt new to me. And I wanted to express that. And I said, the best way to do that, I was imagining a clock that just has one single hand and it takes an entire year to go around. So that was in 2005, spring of 2005. Um, we had already created something. That was Ari and I's first project is Missing Pieces is something. And we got that into some gift shops and at the New York gift fair. So I had a reason to be in New York to go see something. And something, just so you know, is... It's hard to describe. It's a little block, but it's really fun to hold. And it's really substantial. And on this really nice kind of semi-gloss paint that feels nice to rub. And as you look at it, it just has, in very simple typography, it just says something. Tell me more about it. Uh, something was invented on January 4th, 2002, when I just had this intuition. I had a vision in my head of a small item, a small block that looked a certain way. It was just like a cube. And it said something on it. That simple. I was imagining like, if you can imagine a piece of white marble that's the size of like a camera battery on a DSLR, <laughs> just a, a small little thing 
and it said something on it. And I thought that was just like the funniest thing. And that was to me... That's that, it. Yeah, that's it. That's all it was. It's just something. Um, <laughs> but the, the insight to it was so profound that I, I felt as if to me, something was the first time that all of the things I had been experiencing in my life, all the research, all the reading, all the books, all the movies, all the you know, love, all of the relationships in my life all collapsed into one object. And mm. that blew me away. So the very next day, I went to Staples and I got some stuff and I like cut this piece of wood and I just made one out of wood and I made it black with white letters. And so I made one and I gave it to a good friend and she just laughed. We cracked up like close to tears <laughs> cracking up because it's such a funny thing. It's such, <laughs> a, it's such a weird thing to experience. And so I... I wanted to. Yeah, you kind of hold it. You're like, what is this? What is it for? <laughs> like, yeah. it's something. Wow, I guess this is something. It's something. <laughs> yeah, it's something you've never seen before. Yeah. And so what I realized was that I was handing somebody something that no one had ever seen before. And when you hand something to someone that they've never seen before, the reaction is priceless. This yeah. is a way of. I realized it was a way of taking the temperature of the human imagination. Huh. So I started making more and more. I made 500 of these things one at a time and trying to perfect the shape. And after 500, I was like, okay, I know what it looks like. So I created this blueprint and then we had them made in Colombia through Ari. So this was our first project as Missing Pieces was wow. something. And to me and to Ari, it was about let's make something so legit and so real and so powerful and heavy. Um, I don't know if you have, you probably have a sample that was made in Colombia. If you have something I made. I received something with my today clock. And yes. so, yes, I have experienced it. It's very well made and it's not just a block of wood. It's corners are rounded. And when you, when you hold it, it feels tactile. It feels good to hold. So yeah. there's thought that went into it. There's thought and there's lots of like me sanding it with a belt sander and like having the piece of wood like shoot, shoot off in a million miles an hour or like, you know, <laughs> scraping yes. my, having, having my fingernail completely zipped away. So oh. I made a bunch of them because it was about that tactile thing. But Ari and I were like, every video we make has got to feel like something. Yeah. So it was a... It was a thing for us to hold on to and be like, yeah, this is real. And so we would give it to people also, and no one's ever seen something before. So the reaction was incredible. You know, as far as like making an impression with people in the inner circles of New York, that something was the ticket that opened the door for us in such a big way and introduced us to people and kept us in their mind, like, hey, they've never seen that before. Um, so it was right. a, an effective tool to help us ingratiate ourselves with the movers and shakers of New York City in 2005. See, I think that's really important because you did something novel and you did something intuitively that you knew would somehow be important. And you didn't second guess yourself. You just did it. And mm. it's such an inspiring story. So then what happened? You guys found this agency and you go on to work with bigger and bigger people. You're in this new emerging medium and you're successful. Um, what kind of projects did you work on? What kind of clients did you have? I think one of the most profound ones was when we, there's a blog called Cool Hunting and we started to make a video series with Cool Hunting. So we were taking this blog, this publication that was showing the interaction between design and art and architecture and things like this. And we were like, let's just make an episodic, you know, show like we were journalists and we were going to go document things. 
we started working on that and that gained such popularity so quickly because every episode was like better than the next. It was like, what the heck? And so we were listed on Time Magazine's top five podcasts. Like the first oh. time Time Magazine ever said the word podcast. So it was... Uh, wow. Yeah. It was like us and uh, Ricky Gervais was doing a podcast at the time. <laughs> yeah. And so that... And then we wanted a Webby for that show. And right around that same time, we were starting to get all these... You know, people are calling and people like the show. And the TED organization in 2006-ish, we started talking to them. And in 2007, they had us come to the actual TED conference in Monterey, California. Wow. Um, and that was transformative because no one has a video camera <laughs> inside the behind the scenes of TED. And so they had asked us to make a documentary. Oh, and wow. So we did, yeah, we did that. And we got to interview you know, the Craig Venter, like the, the guy who sequence the human genome, things like this. Uh, um, what? <laughs> yeah. So we were able to sit down with these people and, and like absorb their information and talk to them and, and, and get to know them. And so we made a film in 2007 about Ted. And then we got invited back because they liked it so much. And it was that year, the next year that I, I made this film that was so... To me, it was so inspiring. It was just like so moving because I knew I knew the terrain. I was like, I know what I could make happen here. And so in 2008, I made this beautiful film. It was the last time they were in Monterey. And you know, you're like sitting next to like the guy who started Netflix and, and Matt Groening, uh, who wow. started The Simpsons. And it's just like the caliber of people there is really intense. And the question at the end of the conference, they always say, okay, next year's theme is going to be so on and so forth. And so the next year's theme was what does the world need now? And the mm. guy who came up with the theme is not, he grew up in Sri Lanka or something. So he doesn't know about the song, what the world needs now. Right. I don't think he doesn't. That's the first thing I thought of. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. But so I think about it a little bit more and it, I felt like I could answer that question. For some reason, I wow. felt confident enough to be like, okay, that's a real question. What do we really need? So in 2008, I just, I took that with me into every interview that I had and I kept thinking about it. And the more, the deeper I got into it, the more I realized that an idea that I had in 2006, the spring of 2006, after my first year in New York, this year-long clock, that that was actually the thing that the world needed. So by wow. 2011, a few years later, I had come to the conclusion, it was like, wow, this is actually what needs... I don't want to be the person who's like not making the thing that can actually be made that might actually solve the problem. I don't want to just keep going on to go on to like make another commercial or make another thing. Wow. I start, yeah, I started to feel like I was being used by all these companies to like make them feel young and fresh and hip. And it, it was like, right. what's the real payoff here? Yeah, making money and the company's becoming successful. But what am I act? Am I really making a difference? Right. And I came to the conclusion that I wasn't making a difference in the same way I could if I actually made this timepiece and brought it out to the world. Now, at that time, I had no idea that it was going to become successful. I really just wanted to realize it for myself because it felt yeah. like I was getting wound up. You know, I was completely in the zone of, you know, second by second, totally absorbed in work. Work was the only thing that existed for. I lived at Missing Pieces for four years. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so yes, yeah, so I, I needed this break. I needed to like shift my thinking and have something in the world that was like, Oh, oh, this is good. This is like a talisman or a symbol. You know, I'm I'm from the school of thought that loves mythology and Joseph Campbell and all these things. And yeah. I'm asking myself, like, this is the most amazing time to be alive right now. And we have no mythology or symbols that can show us, that can relate us to it. 
how can we make the magical mythical things in our lives contemporary and how uh-huh. can we invite people to participate in that so that's what i'm really interested in and the whole video making missing pieces thing was just it was like college for me it was like grad school to understand the world in a new way and i felt like it put me in this corner with this idea like what does the world need now and bumping yeah. bumping shoulders with rex hastings and, and yeah. you know who who am i and how can i help is is really the question. Do you feel like being around those really high caliber people like rubbed off on you in some way? Like did that have an effect being in such a room full of people that are thinking about how do we shape the world? You know, I am only the result of the books that I've read and the movies that I've seen and the poetry and the relationships uh, 100%, you know, not just the people that we met at TED but you know, going on these adventures and meeting these different artists and really listening to them and then trying to create a portrait of who they are as a person in the world with a video and getting that deep into who they are and trying to concentrate those ideas. Absolutely. I mean, that's why I was addicted in a way to that knowledge base. You know, taking a camera into the world is such an incredible way. It's like a key. It just unlocks Mm. people and experiences. And that's what it was all about for me. It was, was being you know, getting that sense of being rubbed off on. Like I, I felt like a sponge in all those situations. Well, so that's I what I like about podcasting. It's the same kind of thing. It's like you grow your knowledge sphere. The, just to hear the stories of what you're sharing, it's like my hope is to pass that along to other aspiring artists who are starting out and to have exposure to different things that these are things that have happened. Mm. This happened to you. This is a thing that is possible. So I absolutely agree. Are you still at Missing Pieces? Nope. I, in 2013, we had peaked so many times. Like I felt like all my dreams had come true. Mm. And I had been in that company for 10 years. And I was like, okay, I can't see myself here doing what I'm doing right now. And another 10 years, I have to go off into a new direction. Like I know it so well. I know being on a set so well at that point that it was, I don't know. So yeah, so I left Missing Pieces because I had found the missing piece. And so I'm pursuing that now. I wanted to ask you about your work with Brian Eno. Yeah, his visual art is incredible. Um, Everybody knows him, of course, as Brian Eno, the master sound developer and the person who invented ambient music. Uh, but at towards the end of my career at Missing Pieces, it, it was actually after the Brian Eno piece that I was like, okay, I, I think I'm ready to move on. I couldn't see... To me, it was like such a peak experience working with Brian Eno. Working yeah. with Brian Eno. I, I interviewed Brian Eno for an hour. I didn't work with Brian Eno. <laughs> but I, I had a chance you know, prior to that hour that I had with him, I studied for... I think it was like a six-week long thing. That's all I did for six weeks was understand everything... I mean, everything that you could ever know about Brian Eno, I tried to wrap my head around, especially his visual art. And he opened up his whole... He gave me like access to everything he's ever done. He has it like all very well coordinated. And so I just poured over all of it. And yeah, I wanted to have an interview with Brian Eno where I was asking him questions that were only in the present. I wasn't bringing up history or anything. I was just, just working from the living present moment with him. That's amazing. Yeah, he's actually done a thing where he mocks being interviewed. And so he plays <laughs> he plays the interviewee, he plays Brian Eno, and then he plays this guy called like Dickie something. 
and he's got long, he's got a wig on and he's like a real prick. And he'll say, uh, he'll say to Brian Eno, like, oh, so this thing that you did with Roxy Music in 77, were you, um, were you high? <laughs> and, and, and Brian Eno, he'll start to say something and then Dickie cuts in before he even starts to say something to ask another question. So he made this whole like mockery of how to do a bad interview. Um, <laughs> no pressure. Right. So I definitely, <laughs> I, I watched that a couple of times. I was like, Ooh, yeah, it was actually, it was an intense moment, but it was almost like an Olympic moment for me. I felt like I was, um, it really was like the, the pinnacle for me of interviewing people. I have so much respect for Brian Eno and how in the world has he come up with some of the harmonies he did? I can't understand. It's unbelievable. I mean, I listened to so much Brian Eno music leading up to that interview. Um, but, uh, just... I love the film because it opens with one of his slow motion music pieces. Yeah. Which throws a lot of people off. People are like, I'm not watching this. It's moving way too slow. But it's, you know, it's actually one of his installations that moves super slow. 77 million paintings, I think is what it's called. But he's talking about at the very opening of the interview, how to expand that moment of time and you're waiting for this next chord and you're suddenly you just mm. kind of get present with it and then it morphs slowly into this other chord. And it struck me when I saw this film that this is what you're talking about. Yeah, that's kind of why I left on that note. I left the company. Like I sold my shares and I was like, okay, I'm done with this. I'm gonna, I can't see myself being at Missing Pieces in 10 years. It's going very well. I've made myself redundant here. I don't actually even need to be here. It's, it's become so successful. So I had that luxury and Brian Eno was the last piece that I made. I was like, okay, I'm going to go out on that one because yes, it had so much also to do with where I was as an artist. And what happened with Brian Eno, the most important thing that I have to tell you is that he put this thing in my head, this idea in my head that the true challenge of being in New York City is fighting transience. Like you, you're either moving to a different place or you might move somewhere else. Mm. And he said, what, what I would ask artists to do. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> He's like, stay in one place and work on one thing. And just be okay with that. Stop playing this game where you're oh. um, trying to you know, outdo yourself every time. Like every time this is a, a different thing. Find something that's true to you and stick with it. And say, this is it. I live here and this is my project. I'm going to be working on this. You can call me, but I'm going to be working on this. And for however long it takes for it to work. And that's what I did. I decided to, yeah. you know, in a way, he, he inspired me to, to take this leap of faith, this courageous leap of faith to say, look, this is... I think this is so important and so valuable that I'm going to, you know, organize my life around it. So your first Kickstarter, The Present, mm -hmm. launched with a goal of $24,000. And within 72 hours, you had exceeded that goal to finish, I think, something in the realm of like two hundred and. $11,000 for your very first Kickstarter campaign? It was, I like your memory better. It was 97,000 is what I... Yeah. Okay, 97, because I'm thinking of the second one, the Today Clock. Okay, so... Yeah, yeah that one, the present, the, the present raised 97, and then I've, uh, I raised like two, 284 in 2016 on the present day. Okay, so you raised $97,000, which is a lot over your goal. And mm -hmm. this moment, you know, $97,000 is about to hit your bank account and you have to deliver more clocks than you <laughs> thought you were going to make. Mm -hmm. 
What, do you, what does that feel like? Oh, it was amazing. It was, it was an amazing moment that to get that validation that other people were feeling the same way. It's like, oh my gosh, I think I know what this guy's talking about. This might work. Now, had uh, you prototyped the clock at this point? Yep. Uh, it was summer of 2011. I hired a you know, sort of one of these circuit benders in Brooklyn to create an actual circuit board that ran at 365 days a year. So I wanted to get used to the speed of it, of the year in a different way. Mm-hmm. And How so long I, had you been experiencing the clock before you launched the campaign? About two weeks. Oh, okay. So you barely even <laughs> saw it move. <laughs> exactly. But I still, that was long enough for me to know that I was like, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. I should make a hundred of these is what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why I asked for $24,000. Um, because I was going to hire this guy to make chips and do it this sort of underground way. And because I had to make it like 800 clocks or something, oh my it, it just the scale and how I thought about what the movement should be had to change. It had to be reliable. Not that the other guy's work wasn't reliable. You know what I mean? I still have that movement he made me and it still works fine. Uh, it was just, I wanted to be more certain. And that's when the Germans came in and they had the idea to link the, the hand to the present to where it would set itself to wherever you were in the present. Wow. Yeah. So that's what it does. You know, when you put the batteries in, it finds wherever you are, you know, it turns itself on to the day that you turn it on, basically. So you don't have to like wait till the solstice or the equinox to like know when to start the clock. No, but that actually just made me think that that's actually a really good time to start the clock. It would be. Wow. And so you find this project, you realize, oh my gosh, I've got to make Way more of these. I got to make 800. I thought I was going to make 100. And now I've got to go to Germany. I've got to find someone who can, who can make this reliably. And you do. You said you found a firm in Germany. Tell me a little bit more about how you did that and who you found. Because I think that's a very interesting part of the story. Well, I mean, yeah, it comes from that place of knowing that I had to make so many and I wanted them to last for a long time. You know, we're talking about time here. I've got to take it seriously and get something that really works and does that one thing for a very long time. And so finding the movement creators, it was a whole adventure of making this thing for the first time. Like that, that had not happened. These German manufacturers thought that they were going to be making 12 hour, twice a day clocks for the rest of time. And then somebody says, why don't we create a whole new movement that moves at this pace? And so they jumped on the idea. So like the annual movement didn't exist? No. No one had made it before? No. Congratulations, Scott. You did something on the earth that no one has ever done. <laughs> That's hard to do. Oh, thank you. And also, holy crap, like, <laughs> uh, I have to make this work. Yeah. Because exactly. you kind of have this idea that, I mean, I would assume that maybe it wasn't as difficult to do. I could just imagine the process of like, oh my gosh, I'm searching, but I'm coming up totally nil. Nobody does this. Yeah. It was such a risk. I knew I could make them with the circuit bender. It would just be a different type of thing. Yeah, so I just wanted to go with a firm that had been around since 1899 and link it to that history as well. So, but I mean, it was worth it. Whatever I went through and I had so many people helping me make this a reality, it was all worth it because now those clocks were made and people got them in 2013 and have been living with them for seven years. And it's only gone around the dial seven times since you made them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's just mind-boggling yeah. to me. Yeah. yeah. You think I can guarantee enlightenment in seven years? 
<laughs> I don't know. Have you gotten any feedback from people? Yes, I have. And that's it's kind of the main reason that keeps me focused on this project, because the more people that can think and feel the way that people think and feel when they share with me what's happened to them after living with the present, you know, more of that should happen and can and will. Gosh, where do I even begin? There was like this 78-year-old lady that texted me out of the blue and said, do you have any more of these timepieces, these present timepieces? Uh, and I had one left at the time, and it was the one I had. And she said, I, I wanted, you know, my daughter had one. I want one now because I can see that the end is coming, but I think that there's something special about your timepiece, that that's the way it really is. Huh. And that's what I'm reading into it, you know, but those were the text messages that I did. And, and I sent that to her. And you sent her your last piece, like your personal piece. Yes. Whoa. Because what am I going to, I didn't have anything left. You know what I mean? I, it doesn't, I'm already having that gift with or without the clock. So mm. it's much more important for somebody to have this experience than anything else. Well, so they sold out at MoMA. You somehow managed to get them in the Museum of Modern Art store in New York City. Yeah. That's amazing. And Thank they you. sold out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I... I <laughs> I'm just sort of like kind of going like in my mind, I, I looked up missing pieces and, you know, of course they're a big agency now. They did stuff for Stranger Things and a lot of different major ad campaigns that have been in big cities and things like that. I'm sort of just looking at your approach to it. And it's like, there's all this success that you've had and you're so soft-spoken about it. <laughs> but I know as a creative and I know as people who are probably listening to the show that, you know, a lot of these moments are hard won or maybe like you said, all your dreams came true and then it's like, okay, now what? Exactly. So, I mean, to most of my clients and friends, getting an art piece like that, that means so much to you into the Museum of Modern Art you know, and having it sell out would be like, like a milestone, huge, yeah. huge moment. Absolutely. I I'm, I'm, was thinking that the entire time. And so I recognized once I had already made, I had like a thousand clocks, what am I going to do with those? And I went to visit my brother in Seattle and I had this very peaceful night at some Airbnb. And I thought, what is the real goal here next? What is the next clear thing? The next clear thing was approaching the team at MoMA and getting them to, you know, I don't even know who to give it to, but like, this should go into your store. I was going to take the year to do that. Uh -huh. That seemed like a good enough goal. And I concentrated on it and I was with it and I felt it. And then I woke up the next morning with an email from MoMA wanting one of the Wait, presents. like you, you reached out to them and they emailed you? I didn't reach out to anybody. They reached out to me. So you, you had this clarity moment. And you just said, what's my next thing? You and got present. The, the, moment, the moment was the answer. And I went to sleep and I woke up with the answer in the, in the email. Another answer. See, because I hear people's minds going pew, pew, pew right now. And the funny thing is, this has happened to me multiple hmm. times. Right. And I think this is the magic of the present. I think hmm. when you get present and you really get clear and you just let go and you just say, okay. Hmm you know, then things like that can come to you. And I think yeah. that's the gift that you're giving people in a practical way. Um, mm. Like the lady who you told the story about who said, I see the benefit of this in my daughter. I need one of these clocks. I can see. And 
uh, just okay. I'm a little mind blown. I gotta say that's I did not expect that part of the story. Uh, so thank you for sharing. So yeah, so you're just you're and also the other thing that sticks out to me is that you didn't say. Oh, I'm going to goal set by this, you know, by June 1st, you know, and maybe six months out, you know, by June 1st, so this date, I'm going to just make sure this happens. I'm going to do everything I can to pound the pay. I mean, you were ready to pound the payment. You were ready to go talk to people, but like you gave yourself a gradient, like a container of a year, which didn't Hmm. seem to, if I'm, if I'm correct, like it didn't have as much expectation on like, if I don't set a deadline then, you know, I'm not meeting my goal. It's more like I'm going to allow myself a period of time to explore and discover how this might happen. Yeah, you got to give yourself time. That's, that's pretty much it. Well, it's like the seed, right? You know, there's the the yin and the yang, and there's always that little dot of white in the black and a dot of black in the white. And so I think there is action in being in the river, you know, in, in terms of art, you know, you have to be inspired, right? You have to have that seed of spark of insight, but it's not, it doesn't always have to be a thousand percent <laughs> at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like sometimes it's literally just, okay, well, so I focus my attention. I sort of move the camera lens over here. And by pointing the camera lens over here, that creates a scene. Yeah. And the power of our attention to direct experience is quite powerful. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm just kind of imagining like, this am I right? Is that kind of like the way that you approached it? You said, okay, I have this year, I have this idea, this goal I want to explore, and let me take the year to explore it and see what that might entail. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, if you could get one thing down a year where you can think to yourself, like that year, I was able to go through this growth process. I was able to set myself towards something that would be so special that it would be worth whatever it takes to get there. So you kind of put that in the distance and say, I'm ready to walk. I'm, I'm ready to go down the valleys or go through the war, whatever I've got to get to, to get to there. Right. Um, right. It's just like a game, like a video game. You see something off in the distance. You've got to get to that place. You're willing to go through whatever it is to get there. And so... It reminds me of this thing yeah. I tell my team. I know deadlines are a thing, and they, but most of the time, things don't have to be done by a certain time. It's that you want some progress. And so I tell people... Don't ask me when we're going to finish it. Ask me when we're going to start. So I like the idea of if I'm working on a project and there's something that needs to be done saying, you know, hey, when do you want to get together and start? We know we're editing and we can spend three to four hours before we're tired. So what's Tuesday at 10 a.m.? You want to do that? Okay, we're going to start. And then whether or not we're done with that edit, because things happen, maybe we're going to come back again, you know, hey, when do you have time? I have Thursday. Okay, well, let's create a container for that and let's show up and let's journey. Let's explore. And like for me, that's flipped everything on its head because I, I personally think there's a huge link between 
anxiety and stress <laughs> and the expectations that we're putting on ourselves to be productive, quote unquote. Yeah. I mean, you can let things go and they won't disappear completely. You can let yourself go down the river instead of trying to swim upstream. You are in a river, it is moving fast, but you just kind of want to get your bearings. And so I feel like that's where this is all coming from. It's just an exploration of space. How wide is your present? Hmm. How long is your now? What is your temporal bandwidth? I really have enjoyed the idea of a gradiated experience of time. There are no tick lines on this clock. There's no dates. I love this idea of going back to a time that's more circular because we somehow ended up in this really square, boxes-focused version of time where everything's broken up into these little pieces. You know, humans work on rhythms. We have circadian rhythms. We have eating cycles. We have all these different things. The day and night, of course, sets our body clocks and so you had another idea in your second Kickstarter campaign, which was based around the day. Yes, the present day. I think at the time I was calling it today. And it was just after living with the present and feeling that feeling, feeling time in that way that you just described without thinking about it in lines and numbers and dates and boxes to actually sense time in a totally different way and get used to it and understand it and be able to connect with its stillness it just naturally called for some other sense of balance. And so I've always had, you know, looking out the window in an airplane, like I never get over it. It's always just so incredible to me. And from that space up there, I don't know, just time, you're out of the time zone game that we play down here. And <laughs> something's special about that experience. I don't know that maybe that's why you're we- sort of above it. Yeah, you're above it all. And then you cry in a way because you're facing death, like something terrible could happen at any moment. <laughs> um, so it puts you in a certain head state. And I wanted to bring that sense down here and be able to access it more easily. And I thought the 24-hour scale was just a nice companion. It was a companion piece to the present. Yeah, mine sits on my desk. I have the five-inch movement. It's almost at 12 noon. So it's almost at the top of the horizon where I am. I'm guessing it's kind of falling in New York for you. People talk about it. They listen, what's that? Like the time's wrong. No, actually, let me explain to you how this works. It's a clock that has a horizon on it. And so the light blue is like the sky and the dark blue is at the bottom. So the top of the clock, the top half of the clock is daytime. So as the hand is pointing toward the left, that would be right before the sunrise. And as it goes clockwise around the dial, it hits noon at 12 o'clock position. So instead of being a 12-hour movement, it's actually a 24-hour movement, which, by the way, was probably hard to find, right? <laughs> like in terms of clock technology? Uh, they make them still. I was able to get somebody in Germany that has robots that make 24-hour clocks, yeah. So not quite as difficult as the present. So this clock goes around once a day, and you can kind of see when it's getting towards sunset, which I think has probably become the most time-bound thing in my world. Like, I mean, you kind of know that in film, like, oh, we're burning daylight the days, you yeah. know, you kind of get very aware you're three fingers from the horizon on the sun and you know you got 45 minutes. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, that's the thing for me is like, 
defining a moment. You and I right now are having this moment that's contained by this idea of a podcast that we're doing. And you and I have the idea of how long, but we're not really thinking about, oh, it's 43 minutes and 52 seconds into the recording. And I have 17 more seconds to make my point before I have to let you speak. If I start thinking like that, I'm not going to be in flow. Like that is handy when we're referring to notes on the final edit. But in terms of like actual creation and actual relating to each other, I don't see this, the smallness of, okay, this minute, that minute, you sort of put a lot of pressure on yourself, or at least I do to, okay, I got to go here. And it's like, it affects my physiology. I stop breathing. I stop being present. I start to rush things that maybe I don't need to rush. And when you take away those tick lines on your clock mm-hmm. and you're not looking at what number it is, you're just realizing, oh yeah, time has passed. And it's kind of more of a bearing on where we are in time. It's not like, what time is it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what am I supposed to be changing? What am I doing wrong? You know, <laughs> like you said, it's like the time zone. You're flying over the country and you're realizing there's no map lines on that land. Okay. Um, it's just land. And there's these places where the desert kind of becomes the mountains and the client, you see the climate change and there's sort of this gradient of, you can see lines, but they're kind of zigzagging over that way. And you can maybe see where some big flood event happened, who knows how long ago. And, you know, you can see the work of time, but it's not, it's not as linear (laughs) as we tend to, uh, it's not as, you know, start, stop on-off binary kind of experience. No, I think so much of life is not that sort of binary experience. You know, what you're talking about is just observing what's there. We're not trying to put it into a box. We're just stepping back and recognizing this moment is bigger than we're giving it credit for. Now can be longer for everyone collectively. That's how it's changed me. It's given me a sense of context when it comes to time. And it's allowed me to appreciate time as we know it so much more deeply. I can see its value. and I can see how beautiful it is that we have a decentralized, abstract vision of time that every human being more or less on the planet agrees with. And living with the present has changed me because now I can see that that's a jumping off point. That's like a uh, beautiful place to start to begin letting in these other sides of time, these other parts of the spectrum of time that are there and exist, but we just don't have it displayed in the same convenient way that we have seconds, minutes, and hours displayed. So it's changed me because it's allowed me to give myself time. It's allowed me to confirm my sense of patience. And I mean, personally, it's been the adventure of a lifetime so far to make, (laughs) to bring these things to life. But yeah, just having a sense of context about time finally is like, whoa. And now living with the moon, which I've been living with the present moon, I have a prototype. So I'm watching this hand go around uh, and it is incredible to get a sense of that pace because I can see this timepiece on the wall and then I can walk outside and it's almost like I know, I already know what the moon is going to look like. (laughs) So it becomes a part of my neighborhood. It doesn't feel so strange anymore. It's not a surprise when I look up at the moon. It's not like, oh, that's weird. I didn't realize it was like at a half point right now. Now I feel in tune with it. Literally, I'm, I know yeah. where it is and I know where I am. And I'm connecting with all of the ancestors that we ever had. Every human being who's ever lived and can see has a you know, relationship with the moon. 
I realized that the full moon, when it's a full moon, it's a full moon everywhere. I hadn't really considered that fact. Oh, actually, I hadn't considered that fact. Wow. So then that's why the present moon is going to be an incredibly important thing for society right now, because it really does put you in touch with the phase of the moon in such an exciting way. It's like when you first live with the present, you're like, is it moving fast? Is it moving slow? And what's really happening is that you're having a totally new experience that the whole world can share. Hmm. Well, I think it also kind of reminds you to look up because that's the other thing is how many times in modern life where we just drive home from work and just drive straight into the garage, shut the door. You know, I mean, I live in LA, so that's what we do here. Mm -hmm. And it's not often that you're out at night and you take the time to look up. People have been looking up for tens of thousands of years and it's a collective human experience that it binds us to this plane. You know, it keeps us wondering about existence and timelessness in a sense because the stars have been there for billions of years. But the moon is our constant companion here on the earth. And originally the word month, I believe, came from the word moon, like mm-hmm. month. And it's, it's approximately, what, 29 and a half days or something like this. It's very close to yeah. what would be a month cycle, except it doesn't line up completely with the solar year. So I think that's why you, smart people had to do calendar stuff to make things not yes. drift. It was interesting. I was looking at a website and they were talking about the second and how it was developed, and the fact that time is the most measured substance in the world. Really, truly, we can't exactly measure time. We can sort of just break it into little pieces and subdivide a fragment of it. But time is very fluid. It's not as fixed as we like to try to measure it. Mm -hmm. It's really the perception of how we're experiencing that time. It's like you're a kid and you're waiting for Christmas and it takes forever. Yeah. Or, you know, if you're outside playing and it could be three, four hours and you're like, but I was only out here for just a moment. Mm -hmm. But it's not actually real. (laughs) Right. It's it's very real to us, yes, but it's an abstraction that we've all agreed upon, just like money. It's like this thing has value and that we can equate these things by seconds. And it's a way of organizing the world. Yeah. But the interesting thing is like, you're right. Money is simply an agreement. It's this thing that we all decided is a thing. <laughs> it has yeah. value and it does move the world, but it's a concept that moves the world, which is makes it very unique in the world of things. Mm-hmm. You know, it has its place. Don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating for destroying regular time. I think it's incredible. We need to be on time and we need to know what time it is. But we also need to know what time is in general. So I believe we need tools for that as well. Yeah. Well, and I think humanity has progressed so fast in terms of science and technology and education, but we've also lost our roots in a way. You look at ancient civilizations that were more in tune with the outdoors. Mm -hmm. So they were always looking up at the sky Mm -hmm. and they knew the seasons because it's what helped them grow their crops. It's how they could predict certain cycles and things that were very necessary for life. Mm -hmm. And you made holidays around the seasons, your festivals. And also you could look at the moon, you could look at the stars, you can see what's going on and wonder about 
the passage of time and then suddenly notice, oh, here we are again, <laughs> only mm. it's a little different. Right. Um, it's progressed. And I think it's just a more natural way of living to expand your moment, as you were saying, you mm -hmm. know, and looking up, I think, to connecting with the earth under our feet. It's something that we don't often get to do if we live in a city and ride in vehicles and, you know, all the things we do that sort of take our feet off the ground <laughs> and put a roof over our head and we don't look up. Yeah. I mean, the fear is that we disregard the whole of human history, that we turn our backs on our ancestors and we've invented some new digital <laughs> world, mechanical world, and where everybody's convinced that producing things and turning the whole world into a factory and a garbage dump is just the way it always has been. Hmm. And I think it's interesting when we think back to ancient civilizations, we're like, yeah, they were much more connected. To me, um, the beauty of human civilization, I think about Shakespeare in 1596, 1597, writing Hamlet, okay? He's living in a world where time is nowhere near what it, what it is to us. There is no, Shakespeare was not like, okay, I got to hurry up and do this before three o'clock and then I got to go to this meeting at 3.30 and then, and then you know, oh, oh my gosh, I've got to hurry up and get this soliloquy done um, in the next two hours because I've got that meet. You, you see what I mean? It's just not, it's a more... You're never going to get Romeo and Juliet that way. Exactly. That's the, and so that's what's so extraordinary about that writing is like, how is this even possible that somebody could put this much time into it? And I think it has so much to do with the culture, the human culture was peaking around then. And, 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 then, and then it goes into the Dutch golden age um, and throughout the 1500s. And then in 1600s, 1700s, we slowly started getting timepieces. And by the 1800s, it's, it's really going strong. We're, we figured out interchangeable parts, which is a breakthrough in technology that you could just have mm -hmm. the same parts and put them all together. That's like 1838. And then we just started making timepieces. That was the first thing that was ever on an assembly line were clocks. Oh, wow. Yeah, the interchangeable parts came before assembly lines. Huh. So you were able to make all these clocks and people went from making like 12 clocks a year to like 3,000 clocks a year. And so then wow. it was like, oh my God, let's get everybody on the same time. And it, it really is the crown jewel of the human experience, I think, the way that we hustled and got time together and were able to agree on this arbitrary thing. And then in 1884, we all just decided time zones were going to be important because everybody had their own <laughs> clock, basically. <laughs> Things were hours off uh, at a right, time. And People had started traveling on trains. So now you can cross a time zone quickly where before maybe you'd sort of slowly adapt to it over the days of travel that you were doing by horseback. Right. Well, I mean, it sets up a whole system of thinking about time as it relates to trains. And I think we're still there. And there's so much to the human experience that we are leaving on the table. And just to round the point off, you know, thinking back to ancient civilization, sure, for 200,000 years, we were connected to the natural world in a much more harmonious way, you, would, you could say. But I think it was right around the time of 1600, the year 1600, and where that goes from there, that things start to get, uh, you know, more pointed <laughs> and more industrial. And I don't think that that is necessarily um, a healthy thing. Clearly, we're poisoning 
the world. There's something, there's something off about it. So bringing a sense of balance to that and giving ourselves a way to bring our ancestors forward with us into the future, I think is such a healthy thing to do. Well, not only that, but we're poisoning ourselves because the research is that stress is one of the most chronic illnesses on the planet, heart disease, all these other stress-related illnesses that people routinely suffer and mm. just take whatever over the counter to, to deal with it, right? Um, mm. And it's, it's just considered a part of normal, quote-unquote, life, right? And yeah. so something's out of balance. Something is off. And I think you're right. I think it has a lot to do with the mindset that's built around constant around-the-clock productivity. Mm-hmm. And there's no balance to that. I'm not saying productivity is bad, but sure. it's that for every inhale, you also need an exhale. Mm. Mm-hmm. And without that exhale, you can, there will reach a point where you can no longer inhale and you will pass out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was like 70 years ago, I feel like, in human civilizations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, and... Like I said, there's a yin and a yang. So there's also the, there's the time to do and the time to hustle and the time to push. And I, I think for a lot of people that is in your young 20s, mm-hmm. you know, late teens, young 20s. Um, and then you start to develop a more mature, hopefully, sense of, okay, the world's <laughs> not going to end tomorrow. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even though lots of people thought it would lots of times. And... I think with that maturity, you start to realize that your time becomes an investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, time becomes more valuable. I, I mean, I think this notion of balance, this yin and yang thing that you keep bringing up, it makes me think of the fact that the time as we know it now, it really, it's, if you can't think outside of seconds, minutes, and hours, then you really are not thinking long term. You're thinking short term. And so everybody's right. thinking short term just because that all we know is short term. Ter- as far as term goes, all we know is short, <laughs> seconds, right. minutes, and hours. So the balance is giving yourself the day, the moon, and the year to see the, both of these things and start to pull a contrast. And now you've got the other side of the seesaw. You're not completely like ba- up, upside down on the other side. Um, you can get some sense of balance and it's like, oh, okay. You can see where we went wrong very clearly once you start living with the present. And for me, the present, the present day, the present year, and the present moon, those are all ways of giving yourself access to more time. I made this for very personal reasons. The original timepiece, the present uh, year, was an extension of me needing to have some sense of grounding because I was in the business of making time. I was in the business of going around the world, collecting hours and hours of footage, and then compressing that footage down into tiny little increments of three minutes or shaving off a frame or a second here and Hmm. there. Um, And all along, I felt like there was something more. I had gone so far into time that I felt like there was something more. There was a ground of time. There was like a ground of being as far as time is concerned, that I had no way of expressing or coming in contact with or being in touch with. And one of the original fantasies was to have a year-long timepiece in an editing room. 
because the headspace that you get into when you're editing video, it's it, there's so many different possibilities. It's, it could go a thousand different ways or more. You have to ultimately make a decision to clarify the time and to help communicate the story. But I always thought to have this talisman in the room that's like, yes, there's also this time. <laughs> so don't forget that because you're liable to kind of break if you think that time is this fragile second-by-second uh, second thing. When I'm in the editing room, time disappears. And my wife, you can ask her about, <laughs> you know, so I say, oh, I'm almost done. Uh, uh -huh. Was that actually almost or is that Steve almost? Well, <laughs> it might be three hours um, or it might be mm. six hours, especially by the time I shut everything down and transition myself, because you get so immersed in the experience of creating worlds and manipulating time that you do end up at, you, yeah, as studio people lock themselves in rooms for a long time and a lot of them don't have any windows. So the idea for me was to put the present up above my door to my studio so that every time I leave, I take a subliminal snapshot of, okay, what's really going on outside? Because I can, I mean, I've spent six months on a project and with films, mm. gosh, you know, I mean, sometimes it can take two years yep. to do that. So in, in your life moves on and you're losing track of Christmas, you're losing track of birthdays, you know, it's like six months might as well be six years from now. So yeah, I mean, that's, I think why I resonated with it so much is like, as I started to heal from the trauma that comes from too much mm. hustle, it's like, there's gotta be a counterbalance to it. And like you said, that holistic thinking about time is a reminder, oh yeah, there's a world outside these doors. There's a world beyond this project. And the thing that I'm working on right now, the client deadline, whatever, yeah, it seems like an emergency now, but in the grand scheme of things, is it? <laughs> like, right. you know? Do we you know, need that? Do we need that kind of prodding? You know, this urgency, it's like, do you want it done right? Do you want this to last is the question. But with the editing, I feel like it's a little bit like an organ grinder. I have this mythic idea of this organ grinder who gets really into playing the organ, but then like the organ takes over. It's like mm. the person's just going from over here to over here because they can actually play the organ, but the organ is the one running the show. So it's kind of a form of madness that you want to be wary not to go into. So, But I think what you're talking about when you get lost in those caves of creating worlds, that's bound to happen. And, yeah. I, and, and so with filmmaking, yeah, I think it can totally just become a lifestyle. Absolutely. I mean, and I'd like to talk about creative life. You did have an agency and a film company, and it is quite hectic. So tell me more about missing pieces. I mean, there was no time left. It was just constantly going and moving and pushing and just going as fast as possible. It was a dream come true for me. I left Los Angeles in the year 2000 thinking something's wrong with the film industry, like it was missing pieces. Huh. And so that's what I wanted to create. I wanted to create an environment where somebody that was 20 or 21 could come in and be a director on a major production immediately. Which oh, is what wow. I that's what I thought people should do when I showed up in Los Angeles, but that's what everybody's thinking when they show up in Los Angeles when they're 20 years old. Anyhow, yeah, so it was like a lifelong dream seeing that come true. And it's, to me, the present is the capstone of missing pieces for me. It was like a grad school program or something that showed me the world. Yeah. So I talked to so many people and you know what everybody wants? 
no, no matter what the language is, so many interviews I heard, I just wish I had more time. If I only had more time, and this idea is coming through. Yeah. And I'm like, there's got to be a solution here. And I kept coming back to the clock thinking maybe that's related to it. So I sat on it for those six years, just being like, okay, I'm waiting for the moment when the timing's right to put this out, which was 10, 11, 11. So you still edit. Do you still make films as well? I still love to edit. I still edit almost every day. I just think it's such an incredible invention, nonlinear editing. I learned how to edit in 1995, deck to deck. You know? <laughs> Me too. Right? So... Yeah, you got the moments coming where you have to cut to the next scene and you're like, okay, you have to rehearse it. And you're like, all right, here it comes. Here it comes. Yep. Ready? And punch. <laughs> yep. And, and if it, you messed up, you'd have to start all over because it was you could break the tape in a sense. You would break the cut and it would just be a mess. But it was beautiful. Yeah, there was a flow to that too. You know what I mean? There was a technical side to it that you got used to that it was like, oh, I, these machines move at these particular times. You would get to know them. And then nonlinear editing, a system showed up in my high school video production class. And I thought it was the most revolutionary technology ever. And I, was, I went to film school for it. I was like, this is incredible what just happened. I think it's so amazing. And now everybody thinks it's totally normal to like copy and paste footage and to be able to cut it up and slow it down and craft with it in the way that we do and the way that we can now. Mm-hmm. It's you so can do it incredible. on your phone now. That blows yeah, my I, mind. <laughs> I mean, not well. It's hard to push the button, but... Sure. Yeah. But it can happen. Tell me about moving from LA and wanting to be a filmmaker and a, a bit of that. Indeed, yes. I started editing in 1995 on VHS decks. And in 1996, our, my high school got a nonlinear editing system, one of the first prosumer uh, consumer nonlinear editing systems. I had no idea that was coming. I did not read the trade magazines. I had no concept of, of things becoming digital in that way. And I was able to take a VHS tape and essentially record that tape with a computer. I recorded the film Ninja Scroll, a Japanese animation film, into the <laughs> computer. And then I laid it down on the timeline and I was able to copy and paste footage and sound. And it was so overwhelmingly amazing that I was like, I have to go to film school. I'm going to go to a film school. I'm going to learn how to edit. It was so unbelievably revolutionary to me. I just I couldn't believe I was alive in a time when nonlinear editing was created. It was that powerful to me. So I went to editing school and I went to a place called Full Sail. I graduated that. I made a student film that traveled <laughs> around the world. And I was like, hey, I'm a director now. And so I, went, <laughs> I moved to Los Angeles and, you know, Probably 25,000 people also moved to Los Angeles on the same day wanting to do wanting to be. That's <laughs> so uh, true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was so hyped. I was like, I got my cell phone number. I've got an 818 area code. <laughs> I remember thinking like, that's probably what Spielberg's area code is, man. I'm really there. And uh, I, was, I was 19 years old. And it was, uh, it was, it was difficult to get things <laughs> going in Los Angeles. And long story short, I... I felt at that moment of 19 or 20 that I actually was capable of directing things and that it would be smart for a production company to hire me to direct things, uh, music videos or whatever it was, that I felt like I was primed and ready and this is what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, it just doesn't... The world doesn't work that way. Los Angeles certainly doesn't work that way. It's <laughs> Los Angeles' families and factions and, and, and you know, once you get into certain groups, it's 
it can be wonderful, but those it's are all who you to, know. Exactly. It's very difficult to, to penetrate those kind of tears, especially when you're 19 years old. You can't even go into a bar where a lot of those relationships are formed. But um, so I left Los Angeles uh, with a bit of a chip on my shoulder and I told myself, I'm going to create a production company. I realized I had to create my own thing so that I could provide somebody with the opportunity that I was not able to have in Los Angeles. And so Mm. in a way, I moved back to the East Coast and I made this work of art that was uh, four by four canvas squares. Uh, So I painted those black and then I put an M and then there was a space, there was no canvas. And then there was like a four by four canvas of an S and an S and then a space and then an NG and then pieces without the eye. So you take out, you know, the eyes. So missing pieces was missing a couple pieces. Exactly. So missing pieces. I felt like Los Angeles was missing pieces in a sense. And so that was my way of dealing with defining the experience that I had just gone through, through a work of art physically. And it really helped me understand where I was and what needed to happen long-term. And I figured it was going to take me uh, eight years before I had my own production company. It really only wound up taking a couple before a dear friend of mine who went to the same film school as I, we co-founded this company and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. Um, We actually set out by making a product, a physical thing, and we got that into stores. And then it was like, what do we do now? We made a short film. And then I moved to New York for love. And then eventually Ari moved up and we started Missing Pieces full force and started getting clients and started introducing ourselves to as many different people in New York as we could. And we just started rising through the ranks and getting the right calls and delivering and making sure that we were building relationships and and that every film that we got a chance to make, it was another opportunity to make something truly special, to outdo ourselves. And so what that did was it gave us a constant sense of renewal that we were always getting better at what we were doing. And we gave ourselves the space and the time to grow and to meet the right people and to not hire too fast. We just made a lot of smart, intuitive decisions. Hmm. And that journey, this is 10 years of my life building Missing Pieces, was filled with lots of travel and being exposed to different people's ways of thinking. I just... I got way more than I bargained for, hmm. in a sense. I, I don't feel like I bit off more than I could chew. It's just that things became exponential much more quickly than I had ever expected them to be in the amount of people I was meeting, in the amount of experiences that I was able to encompass. It was like life. I would have days where falling asleep, I would think, if I never had another day, if I die tonight, this is fine. Like The day uh-huh. was so large and so rich and so powerful. And it happened so many times that my range of experiencing things was widening. And so at the tail end of this missing pieces experience, which was essentially filming things and um, making web videos um, in the birth of when the video iPod came out, that's when we launched our first video-based show. Oh, wow. So we Yeah, so we were putting videos... Good timing. Exactly. <laughs> so we were keen on taking over that space because it was so new that nobody had any um, sense of what it was supposed to be like. So in 2005, 2006, YouTube, I think 2006 is when YouTube popped out. It was just America's Funniest Home Videos for the first year. If if, if anybody recalls, it was just a joke. It was just like, 
okay, everybody puts their funny videos up here. And so there was no sense of class. There was no sense of, wait a second, let's think about the medium here. This is somebody watching a video iPod. This is a very personal experience. This is no longer right. a movie theater. You know, we're, we're singling it down into a solo experience. And what that meant to me was that we can have a, such a delicate and subtle and rich conversation with a person because we're just talking to one person. And so that's what we made all of our films to make an impact on one person who pushed play. And every time somebody pushed play, we thought to ourselves, that's a gift. And so we had to re respond with a gift. And at the tail end of this whole incredible experience, which I'll put into context somehow, to me, you know, the present, the year, the present year, that is the capstone. That's like my thesis on everything that I experienced at Missing Pieces. And it started to become the next piece that I was going to be able to build the rest of my life off of. And so that's what I've been doing for the past nine years. I think this is so important and so valuable that I'm going to you know, organize my life around it. And so that's what I've been doing. I've been taking my time to make that a reality and to ask myself, do I really want to do this? Is this who I want to be? Do I want to be this person who's talking about the present all the time for the next 10 years? And I got to tell you now in this moment, Next September, it'll be 10 years since I turned on the first prototype of the year-long timepiece. Wow. So at that, now I already know that I'm so ready to go another 10 years on this project. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Just to take the last nine and a half years of your life and you haven't done any other major career pursuit. No. You just do clocks? I mean, it's, there's certainly a lot of my time in the past years has been the actual process of producing a timepiece, which in the real world that works seven years down the line, it's very challenging. It's a to lot do. of work. So <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work and it was a huge learning curve. So this past nine years has been, I've been schooled after six production runs of 7,000 clocks of how to actually make these and to do it profitably and so on and so forth. So I'm just there now. I've just, it's taken that long because I was a film editor and a filmmaker. I had no idea really how to produce. Uh, I mean, I did make something, but that was a, <laughs> there isn't any more thing more simple to make than something. Um, so a clock is pretty complex, but yeah, I took that advice and I definitely am still an active editor. I love the process of editing and I do that to supplement my income. The clocks have not necessarily been um, I haven't thought about it as a money-making business. It's just broken even. And that's all it ever needed to do is to break even because I don't have a need for... I guess you don't need to put this in there, but the, the clocks aren't my only thing. I still am a sought-after editor and can kind of pick and choose the projects that I work on. No, um, actually, I think that's a really important point because one of the things that I've kind of identified through other interviews in the podcast is the idea that if you take the pressure off your art and allow it to just be and exist without the threat of survival, you have so much more room for success. Mm. Yeah. Because otherwise, you end up getting back into that hurried, split-second decision kind of mode that we talked about at the beginning. I think mm -hmm. that's what ultimately causes that. Is this mm -hmm. idea, I got to pay the bills. Uh, rent's coming on the first. I got to, you know, okay, tomorrow, what am I doing tomorrow? What am I, I got to eat? I got to, you know, and that creates this constant urgency. Mm -hmm. And if you're always living in that state, sure, it can create some really good hustle if mm -hmm. you're interested in that and you live that with mm -hmm. missing pieces. 
And Missing Pieces is a very successful agency still. So you mm-hmm. founded something, but you had a time when you were done with that and you wanted to go over to this thing that I'm guessing not everybody understands yet, but you know it needs to be done. And you're the one who has to hold the space for that to get made and to convince people that that's something that they should look at. And it's not going to be something that everybody instantly can relate to. It's not going to just take off overnight. You're not like on the board at Apple (laughs) <laughs> and here's my right. new product. Just here, team, put it to market. You, you're making this thing and you have to literally give it room to grow. So I think that the threat of survival, if you know you lived and died by, if you got thrown out on the street based on how many clocks you sold, I think that might really change your approach to making clocks. You know what I mean? I agree with you. I think that you're making a great point there that I have had that luxury of being able to make enough money editing and things to not force my whole life and my whole income on this passion project. It's much more about... This whole thing has been about figuring out how to make it all this time and how to make it in a way that's profitable and in a way that doesn't like create tons of trash in the world. So I'm there now. And... This next 10 years, I'm going to actually be able to... I'm bringing on investors for the first time because now it's like, oh, this is a real thing. (laughs) This isn't like a joke anymore. Mm. I can actually show somebody the numbers and people see it as a unique business opportunity at this point. So I'm actually selling part of the present to raise capital to give it a real shot, Mm. which means having an actual marketing budget, which I've never done, to having a small staff and to being able to get monthly data on what the sales are like. So I'm getting ready to move into this whole whole new place. I'm actually moving to the Netherlands to do this. This is a whole other story oh, that's really? happened since, yeah, since we've talked. Um, there's a building in a small town. In, it's called Tilburg. <laughs> it's like 200,000 population. So we're moving from Brooklyn, New York to this small town. It's like a university town in the southern tip of the Netherlands. And we're able to do that because the Netherlands has this treaty with the US. They only have it with Japan and the US. And it's this treaty. If you're an entrepreneur, you can go to the Netherlands and start a business, put 4,500 euros in a bank account, and they give you a two-year residency, EU residency. Whoa. Yeah. That's amazing. It's a a little bit more complicated than that, but that's basically it. And so you know, if you're a Dutch citizen, you want to go to the US, the other side of the treaty is you got to put in 100 grand to a bank account in the US and then you can have two years US residency. Wow. But the other way around, it's much more inviting and it's a really smart move by the Dutch. That, you know, they're geniuses, uh, diplomatic geniuses. And it's... Yes. Uh, so we're going to take them up on that opportunity. I, I'm not going to be able to have a store here. I think it's important for people to understand that when you make thousands of timepieces, that's tens of thousands of components. And those tens of thousands of components takes up an incredible amount of space. And so right. I'm going to have to make these clocks in 2021 and I need a space to do it. And I just decided I've been doing this. I've done it in a different place, six different times. And I don't want to do that anymore. I see this as a long-term thing. Right. And so, so we're basically, I'm like setting up headquarters in this place, in this building. Wow. And so, I mean, you kind of are doing this for real. This isn't just a side thing. This is your main thing. It's definitely my main thing now. I mean, that's the shift that I'm making now because of the response that I've had around the world of people living with it and what they tell me it does for their brain. 
I can't, I'm not going to be able to make a movie. Maybe I could, but I don't feel like I'm going to be able to make a video or a movie that's going to have the same degree of impact on people's lives that the present is having. So I don't really have a choice in the matter. I'm happy to do it, hmm. but it makes such a difference for people. Some people like it certainly more than others. Some people just think it's an amazing conversation starter, but some people really like it in the same way that I really like it, which it gives me a sense of calm and a sense of context and continuity that has always been missing from life. Um, so that is so profound. And you're right. Um, it's not going to blow up overnight. And in my estimation, I'm closing in on 10,000 units in the world. I'm about 1,200 units away from hitting the 10,000 mark. And that's not like $10,000. It's 10,000 timepieces in 42 countries around the world. Wow. Um, and so in my estimation, I believe I can get that to 100,000 in 10 years. That's my goal. Wow. Yeah. I want to get back to something before we wrap up, um, because I think the story of how you made the present after this successful Kickstarter campaign is fascinating to me. We talked about time and how there's a different way to look at time. And I think this is so funny. You had an experience where you've started making clocks and you go to deliver them. And U.S. Customs literally does not have a category for annual movement clocks. <laughs> and so they held up the shipment of your clocks because they couldn't check a box. No. Is that what happened? Yes, that is, ac that is absolutely correct. <laughs> like what? It's what? And I mean, you talk about a system that's designed to keep people in a certain mode of thought. <laughs> if you wanted to, to write a script with an arch villain of making people's time rigid, there you go. U.S. government. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were just doing their job. Just they had never written that down before. So that's why I got held up for a few weeks. But it, it all got worked out once we described exactly what it was. I mean, it's not that big of a deal once you find out what it is. They just didn't have a uh, a line item. I wasn't sure. I you know I did see the video about hey, it's almost a year to the date that all you guys put the money down and you still don't have your <laughs> clocks. I know that's kind of a harrowing feeling. I, I know yeah. you're kind of on the hook for a lot of people think oh ninety seven thousand dollars. Wow, it's like I think of it like ninety seven thousand dollars. Whoa, I it's a big responsibility. Enough? Yeah. And you got to come enough? in on budget because if you don't, then how, where are you going to get the rest of the money? You, know? you have to borrow money, which is what I did. Oh, I no. Tell borrow, me. Tell me what happened. Yeah, I had to borrow. It was almost twice as much as I thought it was going. It was almost, I think it, it wound up costing $180,000 making those first 2,000 clocks. It was outrageous. But um, yeah, so I had to take on investors and then I had to pay those investors back. So I made that happen. Okay, so people don't know that. Yeah, it's, it's challenging to make the clocks... And it's also, yes, challenging to think to myself like, oh my God, I got to do this because all of these people need this thing. And I did that for the first two campaigns. I got myself into such a sickness, really, where I was like, right. I wanted to just f follow through on that deadline. And this time I realized like, that's not, that's not the right mind space that I want to be in. I, this is my third time doing this and it's, it's feeling so different now. I don't feel like I'm on the hook. I know that I'm working on something that is going to provide value for their lives. Oh, that's such a mind shift. Yeah. It makes all the difference too, because you're going at the same work, but with a different feeling. Right. Yeah. Without this feeling of, oh, uh, you know, oh, they, they hate me or something. You know what I mean? They're, they're, they must be thinking ill of me. It just opened all these personal challenges up for me to have to face 
how I thought about myself and, and what my responsibility is to, to those people and to the world and ultimately to myself. So it's really helped me transform and grow. Do you find that that ease is transforming the process at all or the experience of the process? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The process has been transforming as I have transformed and as the design of the clock has become more pared down and simplified and made more elegant. And so the whole process of assembling the timepiece is what I'm most excited about. The physical process of putting the timepieces together this time around, I've set up six different kind of locations throughout New York, each time a different time to make these timepieces. And to have like one spot that's what's going to happen this time. I just feel like it's going to be such a different, it's going to be a different approach. Yeah. yeah I, well, and I love business thinking for that reason. I think people think of it as stodgy, but I think of it as creative because you're solving challenges and you're, you're exactly doing what design is set out to do, which is create an elegant solution for yeah. a somewhat complex process. And that translates into ease, that translates into lower costs, that translates into more units getting out, that translates into you not having to take huge loans, hopefully. And I think it's easy for people to go into envy when they see like, oh my God, he's so lucky, he raised $97,000, I can barely raise $3,000, you know, and people have that mindset of like, they don't, I don't think they understand that it's just the money is a container for the work. So you need the money to make the clocks because somebody's got to actually sit there and make 800 clocks and you've got to have a process to get the materials and you have to have, you, you want, you want them to be quality. You want them to be something that's not going to break because that would reflect poorly on you. Heaven forbid that, you know, clocks are stopping halfway through the year and someone just spent their money and now their clock's busted and who's going to fix it? Nobody fixes this kind of clock, right? So I think that's a, an amazing mind expansion opportunity to think of that um, your your latest campaign just finished up, and how much did it raise? Two hundred and ninety one thousand nine hundred and forty one dollars. Whoa! From one thousand and eleven backers from forty one different countries. Congratulations! This is kind of how you're making them, right? Kickstarter is it? No, no, no. It's the Kickstarter is just the Kickstarter <laughs> until the point where I have to hire other people to help me which I have done you know, when I'm assembling, trying to rush things. But I think there's a way of, of just taking it on as a lifestyle. Have you ever thought of making a watch? Sure. Yeah, I think I'm going to make the moon first. Oh my uh, God. I know tons of people who would be down for that. Right? Yeah, it's a very relaxing thing to look at. That's my favorite thing about the present moon design is that it really feels like a shelf for your imagination or for your consciousness, you can kind of like rest your mind because you've been, it's the opposite of an ad. You know, it's like, it's, it's not clawing for your attention. It's like, it gives you space to just kind of rest your eyes. Yeah. And it's so, so nice. And to get to know the moon in the new way, it's, it's wonderful. So yeah, I can see that being a watch, but I'm definitely just focusing on the, uh, you know, there's a lot of changes that I made to the new pieces and I'm still reviewing prototypes. So, so yeah, I'm excited and yeah, it takes a, there's a lot of clock components. You might think like, you know, it's a thousand clocks, but it's 17,000 parts. You have to think in exponential terms. It's, there's just so much more to it. And where is that all going to go? And how do you manage that? And 
And precision, like quality parts matter yeah. when you're talking about timekeeping. Exactly. Okay, so people can go look at your Instagram if they want to follow you at Day Moon Year, and then they can experience the present in this way. So you are, and I was thinking about that for you. I'm like, gosh, you know, rain or shine, you got to get up and post like every day because people are kind of waiting for it. You know, they, they want this, they're accustomed to this. It's like become a fixture in their lives now. And like it was for me, like, oh yeah, the, the colors are changing. That's been a beautiful way to experience the present, by the way, because most of us are scrolling Instagram every day. I always wanted to do this once a day thing, but I couldn't figure out what would be the most fun way to do it. Because we're talking about behavior. Like what do I want to be doing with my body during the day? And I started that Instagram account to where I just upload one image of a piece of color in a sense and some other things. But I started doing it every day since June 21st of this year. And you can see over time the colors changing as you sort of scroll. And that's the only thing that you see. The only thing I post is just the color of the day in a sense as seen through the eyes of the present. But I was trying to figure out what is my behavior going to be and coming up with the names for colors. That's something I've always wanted to do. I uh, wish that was my job, you know, it could come up with names for colors forever. So, <laughs> so I worked that into it as a fun thing. And yeah, I think it's just, I'm trying to figure out how to do these things in a way that I can keep consistent. So you've challenged yourself to make a film every day. Um, that's, yes. I haven't told anybody really about it. Um, it's just been a thing that I've wanted to get going before I felt comfortable talking about. So yeah, I think there's always a little bit of trepidation with that. But honestly, I feel like I cut things out that are seven minutes long, but I want to post the whole thing. Huh. I don't want to edit myself. I just want it to be, because I can go for 60 minutes. I can keep your attention for 60 minutes. It, it just takes so long to export 60 minutes. So I'm trying to figure out how to just export the whole clip and think of that as like editing files for somebody else. So like, in other words, if you didn't have this render time, you'd probably just do 60 minutes and have the magic of not editing at all. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's been the, yeah. How can you talk about something and be interested in something enough for 60 minutes that you wouldn't get bored, you know, that you would just keep, you could keep going, you could keep going on it forever. And so that I've found that in my life and that's helping me grow in so many ways. And it's challenging me in the most peculiar ways. It's like just the exact challenge, the exact obstacle that needs to be in my life is in my life fronting me, you know? Mm-hmm. My greatest fear is always there, but it's always at arm's length, I'm figuring. The fear is always there, but it's kind of just like this gray unknown fog or something. But I don't know. I'm learning how to be still with the fear, accepting it, being in the same room, I guess, or being in the same area. Um, so that's one of my challenges right now. I look at it that way, too. Um, art is soul growth in a way for me, like the, whether I'm doing work for someone else or I'm doing work for myself, I am always in this process of growing and evolving through the experience of not just the art itself, but also all the things that go around it, all the relationships and all the, you know, finding vendors and uh, how not to stress out about crisis and all those things. Like, I feel like that's a part of my path. Yeah. You're gaining clarity. And we're constantly renewing things. We're looking at things in different ways and we learn more and we become more wise and we see things in totally new ways and that never ends. So how do we get used to that? 
Um, how do we get used to that form of change that's a lot slower by our standards, but is truly consistent? You know, yeah. That's, I, I feel like that's what culture is missing, this sense of consistency of change. That's, that's missing. Well, just like the present. I mean, that's the cool thing about it is you look and it's green and you're working on a record or something that I'm doing. And it's like, then you're looking, it's orange and you realize, oh, time has passed. And the comparison doesn't happen in the moment. The comparison happens when you look further back. And I think it's the same with self-growth. I think you can look back 10 years and see, obviously, I've changed. Obviously, yes. I've grown in these certain ways. But sometimes when we put the microscope on ourselves, we go, ah, I'm not going mm -hmm. anywhere. It can be easy to judge ourselves sure. inappropriately, I think. And that'll kill art. Right. That'll block you. And oh, right. it'll block growth. That's what it'll block. All right. It's counterintuitive. It's like in order to get the growth, you have to let go of the demand for growth. <laughs> I think that's a good feeling, you know, just accept that that's there. We're always going to be doing stupid things sometimes. So it's okay to be more forgiving on yourself and to let life in in a different way. It's already here. We don't have to do anything. We just have to notice what's already here. Uh, yes. Scott Thrift, yeah. thank you for the gift of your time. And I really appreciate having you on the Language of Creativity podcast. Scott Thrift was my guest. Instagram at daymoonyear and daymoonyear.com. Thank you for synchronizing your schedule with us and for sharing your philosophy, your art, and your perspective. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Scott. We are proud to announce our launch onto Audible and Amazon platforms. Thanks to Josh Geenan for help with this episode. And please like, review, and subscribe. Stay tuned for the rest of this season. This is the Language of Creativity Podcast.